We can find a way. Idil Elbirish presents. In today's program, my guest is Marina Cantuccuzino from the Forgiveness Project. Hello and welcome back to another program of We Can Find a Way, a podcast about conflict resolution. My name is Idil Elverish. This podcast is bilingual, as you know, and once the Turkish translation of the program is made, it is available through Blogcast, which uses robots to read out the Turkish text. Of course, there are other languages available in Blogcast too, but it is of great help. So thank you, Blogcast, and this is not an ad. No one paid me to say this. I truly feel it made my life, my podcasting much, much easier. Otherwise, I would have had to find people to dub the program during the pandemic, bring them together from a distance, etc. So thank you. And now let's get back to content. In this episode of We Can Find A Way, my guest is Marina Cantacuzino, who is a journalist from London. She is also an author and feature writer who in 2004, in response to the Iraq war, founded the Forgiveness Project, a charity that promotes real stories of transformation in order to break cycles of harm, transform relationships, and build hope. She is the author of two books on forgiveness, and her latest passion is making podcasts. Hence the name, The F Word Podcast, launched in September 2020. I have been following her podcast and I wanted to host her to talk about forgiveness and what it entails. Notice that the podcast is called The F Word and not forgiveness. Even that alone shows how loaded the term is, but it is a way for some people to find out of pain caused by conflict. So she will explain why and how. Thanks to her, I learned about a book called The South of Forgiveness, where the rape victim and the perpetrators came together and write the book. She also talked in the program about the Israeli and Palestinian mothers who come together and talk publicly about losing their children in the conflict. And in fact, one of the conditions for joining the organization is to have lost someone from the family in the conflict. So it is even more relevant today, now that flames went up again in the Middle East, but we have conducted this interview two months before that. So let's now move to the interview that took place on 20 April 2021. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me today. It's lovely to be here, Idil. Tell us about the Forgiveness Project. How did it start and why? Yeah, so I never planned to start a charity. Basically, I was a journalist and had been a journalist for a number of years. And was very happy doing that job. I was doing a lot of traveling. I'm working with the Red Cross, with 
Oxfam. But then the Iraq war happened and I always think that that particular political event kind of politicised me. I was furious about it. I went on the marches. I was convinced that the harder you come down on people, the more they just regroup and come back in a more angry and resistant way. Of course, Tony Blair, our then Prime Minister, didn't listen and the war went ahead. And I thought, what can I do as a journalist? You know, I've got a very small voice, but I have got a voice, I've got a platform. And so over the course of a year, as I was traveling and working as a journalist, I started collecting stories which I saw as countercultural, a sort of counter-narrative to the one of payback and revenge that was being spouted by politicians and the media. And it was just personal narratives of victims and survivors who had experienced atrocity, harm, pain, but had not gone down the retaliation route and sought healing through compassion and empathy and perhaps reconciliation. And also perpetrators of offenders who had transformed their aggression into a force for peace. I felt it was really important to find out why people harm people. I thought this would be a one-off magazine article and my life would go back to journalism. But in fact, it became an exhibition. And I should say, critically, <laughs> that I decided to focus on forgiveness. I just found it always a fascinating subject. And in the course of that year of finding these stories, it was 26 personal narratives, I came to understand that forgiveness was a really controversial subject. People were inspired by it or affronted by it in equal measure. And I also wanted to show it and reveal it as something gritty and difficult, yes, transformative, but also complex and nuanced. And, and I was also very clear that not all the stories should be people arriving at this wonderful place of peace and harmony where they'd forgiven. You know, I wanted to show it as a complex, difficult journey. And, you know, some people may not have reached a place of forgiveness, but what everyone had in common was that they wanted to draw a line under the dogma of vengeance. Basically, what happened was these stories became the F-word exhibition. Forgiveness was very controversial, so I called it the F-word exhibition. And they became an exhibition because Anita Roddick, who was founder of The Body Shop and a social activist, she saw the raw material that myself and the photographer had produced, and she said, these are such powerful stories, you have to do more than this just being an article in a newspaper. She said, I'm going to give you funding for you to make it into an exhibition and hire a gallery in London. I mean, it was amazing. If that hadn't happened, I don't think I'd be talking to you today. First-person narrative, strong portraits, and my life had gone back to journalism. But this time, the subject of forgiveness was so interesting and inspiring to people. I had stories of hope at a very bleak time. And because of the success of this exhibition, I then, in 2004, founded the Forgiveness Project to work with stories that heal rehumanize and restore across multiple platforms in different ways. Victims want to be heard and they want to be talking about their pain. Yes, there was a need, it was the right time, but it's also about collaboration. I mentioned Anita Roddick, there was another woman who I was working for who helped me enormously throughout this period and she helped me put the exhibition on, she helped me form the charity. You know, without her, Jenny Forster, I wouldn't have done this. Tell us about some of these stories. How do people find a way through their trauma and pain? What works and what doesn't when it comes to pain and trauma? Not everybody does recover from pain. Some people go inwards, 
the very negative results of having been traumatised or very badly hurt. They keep thinking about it. I'm sure you've been in that position. I certainly have when I've been hurt or worried about something. I wake up in the morning and go to bed at night thinking about it. And I tell the story again and again. These hurts can occupy such a big place in our heads and in our hearts. The key thing to sort of recover in healing is making peace with things we cannot change. That is acceptance, letting go. Many of the storytellers I've talked to talk about a period of silence. When they don't talk to anyone, they get inwards. And that actually, ultimately, I think, if it lasts for too long, is very destructive. But silence can also be a place where you start to grow your self-esteem and where you sort of reboot in a way. But it's a safe place for people to go to. Rage can be also very useful. It can, it can protect you for a while, you know, empower you again. If any of these things last for a very long time, they begin to corrupt and corrode. I say sort of forgiveness is a pinnacle in the sense that forgiveness seems to have this transformative power of letting people find meaning in their pain and also in truly transforming something that has been very harmful into something that is quite restorative. Pain is the great motivator to forgive. People do it often because they have no other choice. It's a lifeline. Making peace with things you cannot change and reconciling with those inner demons and those ruminations that obsess your mind and inhabit your entire being. For some people, it will go on forever. Not everyone wants to even consider mm. forgiveness if we're talking about forgiveness. I mean, I think everybody wants to recover and they find different ways and some just cannot get there. And it's also it's important to say it's not something necessarily you arrive at. Certainly with forgiveness, you know, one day you might forgive and the next day something will trigger you and you may hate all over again. One colleague, he was in hospital after being badly beaten up in a racist attack, on and off for two years, an extremely brutal attack. As he woke up, his friends and family were around his bed. They were all so angry and full of rage about what had happened. Male friends wanted to go out and take revenge on the young men who had done this to him. A wave of peace had just overcame me, he said. I would not go to that place of hatred and revenge that my assailant had been in. I had to do the complete opposite to recover and to heal myself. I had to go towards love empathy and compassion. His friends and family could not understand it. You're talking about more personal stories and all I can think about are more community-based stories like mm. two communities killing each other, hating each other. I'm immediately reminded of political conflicts obviously. Mm. And even today without really like needing a war, you even have a cultural war. Two parts of one nation hating each other. So how can all this healing, empathy, restorative ideas can work on a community basis? Because that seems to be where it started, although it was focusing on individual stories. But how do you think transformative justice, forgiveness can work in a community setting? I think it's much more difficult to talk about these concepts, particularly forgiveness in terms of societal and community settings, although it's still important. I think we have to remember that communities are made out of individuals, and there are lots of examples. I mean, let's take Israel-Palestine. 
There's a group there called the Parents Circle, for instance, and they come both from Israel and Palestine. They have one thing in common. They have lost a family member to the violence. Mm -hmm. And they come together in community celebrations and commemorations. They go into schools together. They share their story together. They're very public. They try not to get political, almost impossible, of course. All they talk about is what they have in common, their shared common ground. And they talk about that they want no more victims like them. They want no more family members, loved ones to be lost. So I think storytelling is a very important part of this healing. And if you look at Truth and Reconciliation Commission processes across the world, mm -hmm. they have had some effect going public with the story, trying to humanise violence publicly so that people aren't demonised. The perpetrators, I guess, right? Absolutely. The perpetrators, indeed, to tell their side of the story. It's so difficult to generalise in this. So it's a sort of cycle. And I think the processes that work best are those that can treat people equally so that they come into a common space and work through whatever process it is and that they're able to listen to each other's stories. You know, there's that old saying, hurt people hurt people because intergenerational trauma and historical violence that's, and conflicts that have gone on through the generations. Another really important thing is name-calling, again, demonising people. In our communities, some of us <laughs> talk about the police as pigs, you know, even if you have very little respect and sometimes very rightly for the police. Just using that word, she says, don't do it, because using words and name-calling simply poisons the water supply from which we all must drink. So you have then rules when you're engaged in storytelling, which seems to be the core activity that you do. Please tell us more. What are your rules? I assume no name-calling, no labelling. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. When I was a journalist, I did a lot of what in the business we call first-person stories. That is me going out to interview people and writing up their story in their words. And that's how I came to do all the stories. That had no input at all from me, no commentary. And that's how I did quite a lot of my journalism. But I used to think it was lesser journalism in some ways. But where was I? You know, where was my voice? They were always the ones that got people to write in or email or comment. People could empathize with the most. And of course, it makes absolute sense because you could walk in the shoes of that person because it was in the I personal voice. So when I came to do the Forgiveness Project, I knew that's how I wanted to tell the stories. I wanted the people to tell their own stories. And I also knew from my work in journalism that the power of storytelling, it was always stories that people related to, not what experts said, not what I said, not what politicians said. Stories are so powerful. We know this because they can just as easily fan the flames of prejudice, normalize hate. They can do tremendous amount of damage I only want stories that focus on restoration, on healing, on reconciliation. I call them restorative narratives. They are really about creating some good in the world. So with all our storytellers, we call them our storytellers. We try to work collaboratively with them. We take them into, we have a prison program called Restore, and we are very often go into prisons with ex-offenders and victims of crime. We have, we put on events, we have lectures, we run courses. I have a podcast called the F Word Podcast. 
All of this, what we feature is the stories. And through the stories, we look at processes of recovery and healing and processes of forgiveness. People can share their stories in any ways they want. But if there is a rule, it is to be open and authentic, not pointing the finger at somebody who hasn't got the opportunity to refute what is being said. So we have quite a lot of restorative justice stories where you have the person who's been harmed alongside the person who committed the crime or whoever harmed them. I think those stories work really well because you have both sides talking as a whole in a way and they show a restorative process. Do they find you through your work or do you find them? A bit of both. Very often I will reach out to people if I read something in the newspaper. I'll give you an example. One was Thordis Elva. She's written a book with her perpetrator called South of Forgiveness. They knew each other as teenagers. They were friends and he raped her very brutally when she was a teenager. Oh. It's a very difficult story, but she reached out a long time You know, it could be 20 years later. She reached out to him saying, did you realise the harm you did to me that day? Expecting him to deny it. He was in Australia by then. And he wrote back and said, I do. I've thought about it every day since. But, you know, how can I ever apologise enough? And it began a long correspondence between the two of them, which finally ended up in a book written by both of them. So that's a very obvious example. I've done. I heard they were coming to London. It's an invitation. It's a choice. And the stories, I think, do allow you in. Now, it's interesting, going back to your thing about rules, I've just remembered that, in fact, we have definitely ground rules when people tell their stories publicly because you have a responsibility to the person who's in the audience. And now this could be a prison audience. And so an example is if you go in with anger into prison, it's not going to do any good. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel anger, but for our work... It's actually not going to have a positive impact with the prisoners listening to it. If you go in with just simply wanting to tell a story of pain and recovery, you will have a, an immediate and hugely powerful response from the listeners, especially if you are completely not judging them and authentic in the way you tell your stories. They're not motivational stories. They're not like standing up and giving a TED talk. I think authenticity is so important and showing vulnerability and being real. All these things and how people share their narratives is hugely important and it can shift perceptions. That's the thing that I found so powerful. Right from the beginning, people would write in, when I came to looking at this story or listening to this story, I didn't really want to, I don't believe in forgiveness, I thought I was going to be told I was a bad person. And yet people's perceptions and hardened views and fixed ideas shift from hearing these restorative narratives. It's quite an extraordinarily powerful thing to witness. What type of inmates do you work with and how do you pick these people? I'm sure the prison authority gets involved. We don't work in that many prisons, but the prisons we do work in, we've worked in for many years and we work very deeply in the sense that they know our work and respect it. Program manager goes in onto the wings before we even start, so we can meet them informally. And you have to know the prison, how the prison works, and you have to know the, all the wardens and the governors. If you can go into the wings where the men or women live and talk to them beforehand, you get real buy-in. For them, this is about sharing their stories. It's about coming to terms with what's happened, what's, you know, their lives so far, what they've done. It's about connection. It's about 
being authentic. It's not for everybody because you have to have a degree of willingness to expose yourself. And obviously prisoners don't like to do that very often. But at the same time, they're crying out to do that. They're crying out to have real conversations and to be listened to and heard and to share in a safe space. But overall, it's a choice. We have had very good research done by academic bodies to show that it's very effective. Um, I just wanted to come back to this rape story. When you think about the women's movement, it would be very difficult to advocate that kind of thing in the context of women's group. But at the same time, we can't just expect the judicial system to resolve all issues relating to patriarchy, crime and all that. What is your take on that? How would you reconcile this forgiveness, dehumanization stand with being a woman? These are very difficult cases to talk about forgiveness with rape or child abuse. First of all, just to go back, you asked me about this particular case where she's called Thordis Elva and he's called Tom Stranger. And it became particularly difficult when I met them in London because they had been brought here because of the book to be part of a festival book called WOW which stands for Women of the World. That was a a huge mistake because, of course, it produced massive demonstrations and petitions, get them off. How can you bring a rapist onto a stage of a festival about women? It was taken off that festival, but it was put on into a side event. And I think it was extremely powerful because there he was standing on the stage saying, I thought it was sex, but now I know it was rape. I've never heard someone say that before. I've never heard anyone publicly stand up and say that. There's some bravery there. For the rest of your life, you will be known as that man. You've written this book. You've acknowledged it. You've owned to it. There was Thordis Elva standing next to him saying, I've been holding this all these years. I've the one who carried the stories. I'm the one questioned. I'm the one who people go to about the story of my rape. Now Tom can do it. It's his turn. He can stand there and take responsibility for what happened. And when she talks about forgiveness, she says, my forgiveness isn't all happy and is hard. And she's basically saying it has completely freed her and alleviated her from the pain and the the damage of what had been done to her. And it freed her. And it was an act of self-healing. It was not in any way about condoning or excusing the act. And it's very powerful to hear them talk together. I was actually interviewing for my podcast a man who was abused by a man who he trusted and loved when he was 11. And it completely ruined the next 20 years of his life. And yet he came to a point of forgiveness. He says, when the judiciary the legal system has failed you. What has happened is making a monster out of you. What do you have left? And he was pleading to people to understand that forgiveness isn't about condoning and excusing. It's about breaking that link with the perpetrator who's done such damage with you. It's about living again. It's about breathing again. It's about seeing that person as a damaged human being, what Shakespeare said, called ruined pieces of nature, and and freeing yourself of just constantly seeing this demon who has ruined your life. So what led you to make a podcast about this project that you're already doing so much for? I just wanted to go dive a bit deeper with the stories. I wanted to have a deeper conversation. I think podcasts really 
give one the opportunity to unpick and uncover aspects of people's stories. And people's stories change all the time. Many of the people I've talked to on the podcast, I've known over the years, I've worked with over the years within the Forgiveness Project. So it's just another opportunity to dig deep into this messy, gritty, difficult, complex, inspiring, transformative, you know, notion of forgiveness. But thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your time and the things you told me. And I, I hope we can work together at some yeah. point. Thank, thank you so much. In today's program, my guest was Marina Cantacuzino from The Forgiveness Project. We discussed her charity, what it does and how it started. Most importantly, we learned that forgiveness is not necessarily an act of condoning, pardoning, but understanding. We heard about people who supported her, the power of storytelling, and how all this can be applied in communal conflicts as well. So I hope you enjoyed the program. I will upload a picture of Marina in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. I will also share some excerpts from the program in the stories. Lastly, I would like to close by thanking musician Imre Hadi and artist Seren Göktan who allowed me to use their materials. Finally, I thank Efsane Şimal Yalçın for her translation of this program to Turkish. Thank you and see you in the next program. We can find a way. Idil Elverish presented. <laughs>